This podcast is supported by award number 2019JUFX K001, awarded by the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention. The opinions, research findings, and recommendations presented here are those of the hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Department of Justice. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Reflections on Research, the podcast where we talk about all kinds of good research around youth mentoring, youth development, and caring adult-youth relationships. I'm Mike Geringer, the Director of Research and Evaluation at Mentor, the National Mentoring Partnership. And before we get to our awesome guests today, I'd like to just give a shout out to the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, or OJJDP, and we really thank them for their sponsorship of not only this podcast, but also the whole work of the National Mentoring Resource Center, which is the nation's premier source of training and technical assistance and tools to help improve the practices of your mentoring program. We'll be sharing a little bit of information at the end of the broadcast here on how you can access free training in TA and other stuff through the center. But if you want to go check us out on the web, it's nationalmentoringresourcecenter.org.org. So I'm very excited to have our guests here today, because we're going to be talking about uh, kind of caring adult youth relationships more broadly. Uh, Obviously, mentors uh, fall into that category, but there are other people that play really critical roles with young people that maybe don't put on that capital M mentor hat very often, but do provide young people with all kinds of support in a variety of ways. So we're going to be talking to a couple of folks from the Search Institute uh, today, And for those of you that don't know SEARCH, it's an applied research organization based in Minneapolis, and they've done all kinds of great work over the years. We'll be talking about kind of a little bit of their history and uh, what they're working on now as part of this conversation. But I am pleased to uh, welcome two guests uh, from SEARCH. Uh, First is Amy Severson, and Amy is an applied developmental scientist with expertise in developmental theory, positive youth development, and prevention science. And within these disciplines, her applied and empirical work intersects with topics of youth civic development, social-emotional competence, developmental relationships, and issues of equity. Her work is built on the premise that all youth should be valued, known, and heard. And I love that phrase. Um, And that young people are valuable contributors to our community. She also happens to be a member of our NMRC research board. So welcome, Amy. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Also joining us from Search is Cecilia Sadler, and she is the Director of Practice Improvement there at Search. She is a lifelong educator who, prior to coming to Search, had a 20-year career in the Minneapolis Public Schools that included service as a teacher, assistant principal, principal, associate superintendent, and deputy chief of academics, leadership, and learning. Cecilia has also directed student teaching and fieldwork placements at St. Catherine University. And I was very happy to see in your bio, Cecilia, that you are a Hawkeye from the University of Iowa. So I was actually born and lived a little bit uh, in my childhood in Iowa. So most of my family is still down there along the interstate in between Iowa City and Des Moines. So always happy to have a Hawkeye on the, the podcast. Oh, thank you. I'm happy to represent. So let's get down to it here and, and really talk about your awesome work at the Search Institute. My heart is very connected to applied research. That's what I've done for a lot of my career. And really that's research that kind of, while it does contribute to the science and what we know about things, it really is not necessarily about peer-reviewed journals or the ivory tower of academia, but really about applying research in real-world contexts where you help people fill in gaps, improve their practice and teach skills, Uh, to people that in this case are working with young people. Now, I don't know exactly how long search has been around, but it's many decades now. And I was hoping that uh, maybe, Amy, you could start off by just telling our audience a little bit about the work of the Search Institute and some of the big things that you all have done and are known for over the years. 
Yeah, so Search Institute is a nonprofit organization that partners with other organizations in the community to conduct and apply research that promotes positive youth development and advances equity. I I had to do the math myself this morning, but Search Institute was founded just over 60 years ago by an applied researcher named Mert Strauman, who started out by developing this youth survey to assess the concerns and needs of young people, which really was an early step in our work around understanding what young people need to thrive and succeed. So over the past six decades, there have really been three, I'd say three major cornerstones in our broad work on positive youth development and thriving. And so the first one of those cornerstones focuses on developmental assets. And that's what many of your listeners probably think of when they think of Search Institute. Search Institute put out this, the framework, the developmental assets framework, which names the 40 internal strengths and external supports that youth need to succeed. It really was an important achievement in the field because this asset framework for the first time gave researchers and practitioners a really common language to talk about positive youth development. Another big piece of our, our cornerstone work focuses on SPARKS, which we know is another really important piece of thriving. And SPARKS, when we talk about SPARKS, we talk about things like um, the things that are interests and passions that young people have that light a fire in their lives. You, you sort of know when somebody has a SPARKS, right? They just light up. And our work in that space, primarily led by my colleagues, Peter Scales and the late Peter Benson, focused on understanding what what are kids' sparks and how, how do we create a purposeful context that support these sparks and help young people use them to thrive and propel themselves forward. And the last piece focuses on developmental relationships. And we're going to have a lot of time today to talk about that work. But this is really about the close connections through which young people discover who they are. They start to to learn skills about how to shape their own lives and learn what it means to be part of a community and to give back to others. And so what what I really love about work and what why why I love my job so much is that in all three of these areas, search does this wonderful mixture of research and practice improvement work. And so in that mix, there are things like basic developmental research, we do evaluation, there's improvement science, and then we take what we're learning from that that applied work and we develop resources and tools that really put all of that into action. So what are what are we learning and then how do we use it, use it for good and to share it with others. And so that sort of gives you a big sort of 30,000 foot view of, of what we do at Search. Awesome. Thank you so much. And and listening to you kind of highlight some of those major initiatives over the years, it's uh, striking to me how much they've influenced my work and the work of millions of mentors <laughs> literally across the country. I'm, I still reference the 40 developmental assets when I'm talking with folks about the impact of mentoring programs, because oftentimes we have this assumption that, oh, you you have a mentor helping you. Well, obviously your life's going to be a home run, right? Well, uh, it takes a lot. You know, caring adults are like one of those 40 things, right? Or, or maybe a couple of the 40 things. Uh, but there's a lot that goes into a young person's thriving. And so there are systemic things, there are institutional things, there's community level things. And uh, I think when those are missing, it makes it harder for that work of the mentor to to really take hold and and really be transformative in the way that uh, we hope. And then Sparks. I mean, I've seen so many mentors over the years uh, using that book and some of the materials to really help that young person find what's meaningful to them. I've even used it a little bit with my son. He's a, a budding blacksmith and knife maker. So he uh, was lucky enough to find that spark, but it's it's led to so many other career possibilities and, and things that he could do. So um, very much appreciate both of those bodies of work. Cecilia, was there anything you wanted to add uh, around that? Um, I think you kind of hit it basically is when you're talking about your own son and their specific and his specific interest, it is about helping um, adults who are working with youth kind of like find what motivates young people. And what we do is kind of give specific 
strategies or action plans of how to approach those conversations. They might at first seem very rehearsed and role player like, but what it does is give us a, a way to be more intentional. Um, it's one thing to say, what do you want to do with your life? But it's another to build conversations to help explore that. But also it allows a young person an opportunity to get to know that you actually care about what they say they're motivated and interested in. So Cecilia, let's stick with with you here. I wanted to ask about kind of the work of applied research in general, uh, you know, taking research and and then really helping folks do something with it. I, I guess I'm curious, what do you find most challenging about that process and which aspects of it do you think work really well when you're out in the field working with folks? So I think any time, and, and just even based on the education, educational work that I've done, you you have this challenge of you're creating like this buy-in, you're selling something, you're selling a product um, or an experience, and that you're almost guaranteeing something for people. And so often it's it's trying to get past that perception of buy-in for people that we work with and creating a compelling why. So so I've often found myself asking um, teachers or, or youth organizations, like, what experience are you trying to create for that young person? And so what we're trying to do with this applied research is allow people to actually pause for a minute, focus on the research that we've done to be able to say, this will allow you to get to that, that outcome, that end. It's not, it's not a one-size-fits-all model, but it is a way to approach the work that you're doing when it comes to supporting youth. And I think it's through conversations when we set up, like if we're coming into a school district, I talk often about like, what is already your goals? What is your school improvement plan? What have you been working on? How will this be embedded? Not are we coming in to do the PD for August because it's August and you need a checklist, but it's about how does this fit into the work that you're already doing and how can we be value added to that work um, that you're doing? Yeah, I I agree with you, Cecilia. That's a really important piece of it. I think one of the challenges of applied research is that it's, it's messy, right? It's messier than your tightly controlled lab work or even community-based research that is done solely for the purpose of expanding knowledge. But when your purpose is around getting to the, the practical value, you out of necessity need to bring a lot of voices into the conversation. You need to take time to listen and to, to discuss and, and come to an agreement about what it is you're doing and why you're doing it. And, and that, that's messy, and it's, it's the best kind of messy, I think. But really centering that so what, now what question in the work takes a lot more time. And so I think that's one of the challenges um, of the research process, but one that is completely worth it when at the end of the day you get, you get, you get something that's very useful. I love to talk to my friends who have more traditional academic jobs about our work and then also talk about, and this is how people are using it now. This is how it's shaping the work of communities at schools or big brothers, big sisters, which they're, they're often missing that piece in telling their story of research. And it's one that I know I really value and I think is, is, is one of the exciting par- parts of doing um, this kind of work. I'm glad you all approach it that way. And, it, you know, in a weird way, that's kind of been the story of my career a little bit too. I worked for one of the regional education labs for about uh, 17, 18 years. And all of that work was about just taking what we were learning about education, pedagogy, curriculum, whatever it may be, and and helping teachers and administrators and state departments of ed, you know, really do something with it. And and you're right, the more academic uh, folks that I work with are always lamenting, you know, why why is no one picking up and using my stuff? Why don't they get the implications for practice? And I, I really appreciate the fact that you at Search Institute, just you take responsibility for just doing that yourselves, right? We're going to do the research, but we're also going to make it actionable out in the, the world. Yeah. And when we really do that best when we do it in partnership with, with people in the community and with young people themselves. So at the very beginning, we're very cl- clear about how we ideally want to use this information. And if it doesn't have a use, let's not ask it um, because then it's just, then it's just a fun exercise. Um, but it certainly is through those partnerships that we're learning so much. I think on that note, one of the other challenges, of course, is that we, we, we get buy-in and we're in this conversation and we have all these ideas and questions we want to do. But 
no one no one wants to give up time, important instructional or programming time to, to, to take a survey, right? And so it's like, oh, we have 500 questions and we'll give you five minutes to find the answers. And so that's one of the challenges that we have is we get everyone so excited about the research and then how do we keep it really focused so that we get high quality and useful data? So let's talk a little bit here about the other big kind of piece of work that you all do that, that you mentioned at the beginning, Amy, uh, and that's the developmental relationships framework. I loved this the first time I laid eyes on it. I thought it was brilliant and simple and really explained so much about what I think mentors are trying to do, but not just mentors, right? Other caring adults uh, that could step up and and provide guidance and wisdom and support to to a young person. So I'm just curious, maybe Cecilia, could you talk a little bit about uh, kind of how that developmental relationships work got started and, and how over the years you've settled on the five main elements that make up that framework? Yeah, so um, the work of Lee and Julian um, started kind of like in 2012 and, and a little bit before, and it was talking about how are we looking at some factors that are leading to successive interventions with with young people when we're trying to say that their lives should be more in, enhanced, um, more uh, positive, if you will, and, and have kind of this interaction that will really support their relationships that they're having. So it, what they were setting out to do was to try to define what does it mean for developmental relationships, kind of create some measures to go with that, um, look at really a systemic approach for how you would do developmental relationships. And then again, check to see how effective it was. So we kind of took that like big essential question of like, what uh, what is a developmental relationship and um, how can it impact a young person's life? And so with that, we kind of made sure we were looking at, let's start first with our definition of what it means and kind of, these are these interactions that young people are gonna have with adults or peers or siblings or um, in their life that will hopefully be value added to their overall life experience. And this led us to a framework, if you will, that talked about, you know, when we're, when we're breaking them out, we're looking at five areas to be, to be, to kind of compartmentalize what we're talking about around relationships. So this framework is a way for us to make this work digestible for, for um, persons that are going to use it. So when we talk about these um, areas of like expressing care, it's about, uh, you know, you could say to a young person that that I care about what happens to you, but it's about being intentional to show that it matters when they speak. It matters what their opinions are and how you weigh in on them and how you listen. But then another area is how do you challenge their growth? In other words, where are they going and how do you help them set marks for themselves to be able to do this work? How do you then try to provide support as a, a third area of saying, okay, this is where you say you want to go, but this is how I'm going to help you to your satisfaction. Because again, that phrase of uh, it's not support till it feels like support, if you will, just because you said you're going to do something for me doesn't necessarily mean it's working. There's another area that where uh, if you're used to kind of that traditional thought of teacher student and that uh, the teacher is the expert and the student is the receiver of that information. How do you share power? So how do you share power within a traditional setting, in a family setting of what you want to see happen, um, but also then expanding those possibilities for young persons? So once they say, and you're building this relationship with, with a young person, then how do you then say, how can I expand your world outside of what you've already known? Um, what are you interested in? But also what is my my part as an adult to actually help you get there rather than just rely on your own devices. And if you're not as successful as you thought you were going to be, how am I still going to push you so you don't just give up on yourself? So we took uh, the information around how do you create relationships, define it, categorize it, but now let's apply it. And what our work is, is on that practitioner side of saying, now let's talk talk it through of what are you already doing and what can we do to enhance that relationship. I, I appreciate you breaking down the categories there and just so our audience uh, kind of uh, make sure they hear them here. The five kind of elements uh, at a broad level are expressing care, challenging growth, providing support, 
sharing power and expanding possibilities. And then the framework has kind of subcategories uh, within those. And if folks want to get a copy of that framework, you have a downloadable version on your uh, website uh, that folks can find. And uh, it's a really great one pager that I think encapsulates a lot about uh, what we ask mentors and, and others to do. You mentioned one part of this early on, and Amy, maybe you can speak to this from a research point of view of you tested out to see, you know, were these things really the right five things, right? Or there are six things or seven things or two things. Um, and I'm guessing, you know, much like you've settled on 40 assets at some point, uh, you came up with these five things. Could you just talk a little bit about the ways in which the organization uh, surveyed young people and talked with young people in order to validate that these are actually the five things that really stood out? So we we spend a lot of time, uh, probably about five years, really listening to young people talk about the transformative relationships in their lives through hundreds of focus groups and and really wanting to hear from young people, what is it like? And then we paired that with a lot of other information. So we had young people's voice and perspectives. We talked to teachers, youth workers. We looked at the existing literature. We looked at our own assets data. And we said, okay, <laughs> what across all of these are really rising to the top as being a criti critical pieces that need to be named here in this framework and that seem to hold up across diversities. And so we, we did that. And we developed, we've developed a suite of measures to go along with it to understand if these are young people's experiences and rolled that out. I think for us, you know, you, you have to, part of putting the framework out there is to, to sort of articulate with specificity and in real world, everyday terms, sort of what a developmental relationship looks like. And at the end of the day, we're going to leave something out. It can't be all things to all people, um, but we did our best to really identify elements and actions that resonated in our work, in the existing literature. There seemed to be empirical evidence that links these kinds of actions to really important youth development outcomes. However, in our work, you know, in our surveys, of course, you only get data on what you ask about. And so we, we sort of had to put a stake in the ground and say, these are the 20 things that we're asking about. We often pair our quantitative research with uh, either qualitative survey items, open-ended items where kids get to talk about what their relationship is like and how how their teachers, how do their out-of-school time staff make them feel like they matter. And we're always looking at those to see are there big ideas that we're missing? But we also, in our work, certainly our work with practitioners, we, we openly invite different communities to take up our framework and decide what, what about this does resonate and what about it doesn't, and where there might be areas where there could be more nuance in how some aspect of the framework comes to life and whether that's consistent or inconsistent with their culture's identity, values, context. And at Search, in fact, we're just in the process of writing a grant to fund this work um, so we can spend more time on it, is really thinking about testing that idea and saying, well, and really sitting down and having more focused conversations about, you know, <laughs> what is what is working, what isn't working, and how do we bring that learning um, into the framework so that it continues to be a robust and useful tool, both for research and for practice. And so that was a really long answer, but we, so we measure some things, we put a stake in the ground, we, and yet we really invite people to make it their own. And we're listening and learning from that with the idea of constantly improving it and getting it closer to reality. I love that. I especially like the, the aspect you mentioned around going to different communities, different groups, and, and seeing what parts of this resonate with them and their culture and their way of viewing the care and support for young people. I think the mentoring field in general has not done that as well as it could uh, over the years. And, you know, and it's interesting. I think sometimes it's just a matter of, of kind of language and phrasing, right? Um, there's very little in this framework that I think most folks would object to, but I bet you anything in certain communities, they just call it different, right? Or they see it from a slightly different angle and like, well, 
you know, we do that, but we'd never put that word on it necessarily because it has some other, you know, negative connotation to their ear. Um, so that, that's a really important piece. I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. And of course, you know, the challenge when you write a survey then that, that goes with this framework is that something like care can show up in a relationship a thousand different ways and it looks different. And so the universe of possible items is huge. And so how do you find three to five items that that work for most people for tapping this experience so that we can use this data, of course, to inform practice. And so that is the constant balance we have is, do we have the right items that really get at the lived experience? And, and one of the ways we've gotten better at this is by, by really drawing on the qualitative work where we're doing and using kids' own words to draft the items. Um, and we found that to be a really powerful way to write survey items that get closer to kids experience oh that's really a cool a cool strategy uh asking them what they think something means or should be phrased uh uh, that's cool Uh, i also wanted to note since you also mentioned drawing from kind of the research kind of more broadly on what seems to influence the development of young people i just want to note how much this framework mirrors the uh, kind of dedicated mentoring research and things that have really bubbled up as being important in in that, uh, particularly things like sharing power, right? We always think of mentoring as this very hierarchical thing where the the wise elder is going to you know fill the the empty vessel of the young person, and I think that's exactly the wrong way to approach it. And research has really kind of borne that out over the years. You know, they expand possibilities. There's all this attention right now on social capital and, and networking, things like that. So I, it's funny when I look at this, I almost see like a little distillation of the mentoring literature in a number of ways too. Even something like, you know, uh, challenging growth, you know, is an important part of relationships. You can have these very positive relationships that never really achieve anything because the mentor isn't kind of pushing that young person to to get outside their comfort zone and learn a new skill or or take a big step forward on something. So uh, just remarkable to me how much this mirrors kind of the mentoring research we've got. And there's so much synergy between those five elements, right? That you talked about, like challenge growth alone is is not enough. And so how do we pair it with those things? I think the other thing you spoke about is so true that we talk about a lot at searches about developmental relationships are bi-directional. And in this study, we just finished collecting data on, we actually asked young people in teachers and open-ended items and, and program staff about how do young people contribute to your relationship and your growth? And we asked both young people and staff to talk about that. And so we're in the middle of analyzing it. We have about 3,000 open-ended responses, but it's it's where we're moving next is now, while we've always said it's bi-directional, it really does the language sort of almost has a one-way feel. So how do we really articulate what that looks like from a youth contribution angle? And so really excited to see that work coming coming forward. ask about a statistic that I saw on your website. You mentioned that you're surveying young people around these uh, relationships and these various uh, elements of them. But I saw a stat on your site that you estimate that 40% of all youth report having only one or no developmental relationships in their lives. Uh, That's a depressing statistic. Uh, But, you know, it also made me think kind of how like what qualifies as a developmental relationship? Um, you know, if, if a young person has a relationship that's hitting three out of these five, does it count? Uh, does it have to hit all five? Uh, so I'm just curious about that statistic and, and maybe what else you've learned from some of those uh, surveys. What do these relationships look like for Americans' youth? So that's something that we, when we talk about, like what qual- quantifies or qualifies as a developmental relationship, we kind of are are developing and establishing this roots metaphor of when you're growing something. And when we talk about developmental, we're talking about how you're starting um, this relationship and that it's multidimensional, as we talked about, um, just like even the, uh, the elements aren't working by themselves, but that it's also this thing that's still intentional for every person involved. 
and as well as looking at this two-way relationship. So it's really essential for young people to have a relationship that they feel is a give and take. Um, and just like you said, listed in a mentor that it's, it's not this person coming in, it's going to, you know, bless you with all of this knowledge, but it's about this, this working dichotomy of conversations, experiences, and actual intentional activities that bring you together to have this conversation about how you're growing and how you're doing. So often we don't think about saying to a young person after we've had an encounter or an experience that we hoped was going to uh, yield something that they felt was value added of like, so how did that work for you? And then allowing space for them to say that sucked, right? Like that's really important because we don't really give them permission to do that. So then what happens is we may assume that we're growing in this process. And what we found out after doing focus groups is that um, you can even see it from your, your standard student surveys that you do in schools or programs is that the adult may feel like um, I've been giving a lot. So I know I'm showing that I care about this, this young person and the young person's like, uh, kinda, and you miss the mark this way. So then it's taking into account what are the things that, that can impact that? Like what are some traumas or bias or inequities or access that the students are experiencing that we might not even known about because we're still developing that relationship that interrupts them thriving in this, in this relationship that we're trying to build with them. And that's what makes it developmental is that it's kind of the starting bud, if you will, of being focused on how to grow this relationship in a way that the student feels is not only purposeful, meaningful, and has, instead of our own outcomes, meets their outcomes. You touched on something there that I always think about in the mentoring world, which is the difference between how the adults viewing things and how the young person is viewing things. We did a survey of a representative slice of American adults a few years ago at Mentor, and you know, really asked, you know, hey, or do you feel like you're in a mentoring relationship with a young person? So we were looking at both kind of programmatic, but also more informal or, or natural mentoring relationships and was really stunned by the percentage of adults that were like, oh, yeah, in the last year I mentored a, a young person. And in many cases, it reported that they were mentoring many young people, like dozens. Uh, now, some of these were probably folks that worked in schools or after school settings or um, youth programs where they just were around a lot of young people. But I think a lot of them, you know, there were quite a few in, in congregations and religious institutions and workplaces, things like that. But I remember thinking like, you all are telling a much rosier story about your mentoring than the young people that we surveyed five years ago said, right? I think the adults were like, oh yeah, I'm mentoring, you know, 20 kids. And I'm like, yeah, I bet if I asked those 20 kids, uh, half of them would probably say you're, you're not. And so I, I think it's, you know, I appreciate, you know, there's a phrase that uh, comes up in the mentoring world, you know, you're not a mentor until the kid says you're their mentor, right? There's a, there's a bestowing that has to happen there and you, you can't assume it. Um, and if you're assuming it, you're probably doing it wrong. So. Right. So, and, and I, to add to that, uh, so having been a teacher, the majority of my students are now uh, in their late twenties and thirties with children and families of their own. And in some cases, well, what I love is that uh, the Twin Cities area is this place where it's like a small town feel for a metropolis city. So I do run into a lot of them actually across the country. And what I'm always fascinated by is that they can be specific about the, the interactions that we've had that made them think a little bit and challenge a little bit. And now we can actually have conversations about being parents and what we go through as parents with a young person. And what I often tell new teachers is you might not know the impact that you have on a young person till after, you know, they've, they've gotten out of school. So how do you create an opportunity for that young person to kind of like give you the formative assessment of how you're doing along the way um, and you to be able to actually pause, take that in and, and try to adjust on purpose what they told you you should fix. And so that's the kind of work that we're trying to do now is to not make people feel bad about per se the work they're doing, but to say, let's put something in your toolkit so that you actually even have a way to respond when the kid tells you you're kind of missing the mark. I love that. And 
folks who, uh, who listen to this podcast will remember earlier in the season here, we had Julia Price come on and talk about quality and mentors that she's studying called attunement, which is really a, a fancy way of saying, are you and the mentee on the same page about how this is going? And to your point, are you creating intentional moments where you're getting that feedback and doing something with it, whether that's changing your approach or skipping the activity that you had planned so that you can focus on something else that maybe is more uh, immediate need of that young person. So you also touch on something that I think really plagues the mentoring field specifically, which is we always evaluate the impact of a program like two days after the relationship ended. <laughs> it's like, well, you know, they're probably not going to realize until they're like 30 how impactful that was, right? Both good and bad. I think uh, you often find these stories where it's like, oh, you know, I didn't realize it when I was 15. But yeah, that teacher really had an influence on me. And it wasn't until I got later in life that I could kind of see that and see how their their words and actions played out um, in my my own life. So, So you mentioned, Cecilia, I think where I'd like to go next here, which is how do we then work with adults to provide more of these relationships? You know, mentor and the work of mentoring programs, we're obviously always trying to recruit volunteers, but frankly, you could triple the size of the nation's mentoring programs and it would still never be enough. Um, so kids are going to find these relationships kind of where they find them. So you're doing a lot of work with institutions, schools, uh, sports teams, others who work uh, with young people every day. I guess I just want to ask kind of how how much is needed here around this? Um, you know, do you find that adults need a lot of uh, help kind of uh, adopting this framework and bringing these things to these relationships and, and maybe what's preventing them from doing that just inherently in their work? So, so that, that's such a good question because we do talk to all different kinds of entities from individuals to bigger organizations uh, across the country. And so one of the things that I like to do, because that's not my my role, is to take this research and have it be user friendly. So what I often like to do is be on um, in a client conversation to to hear where they're at. And I think that it's about conversations with um, an organization of where are you with what you've done already? What what research have you done? And then we we also do look at like what kind of questions you know a person has asked. But the second part of that is we do talk about, and maybe that's the, the part that I bring into, is uh, readiness to do something different or to do that next level. And then it's looking at what's the commitment and the time. So I think, yes, you find all of these organizations who, who could say, well, we need a little bit of help here and there. But then when they actually start going into it, they understand uh, usually later on, but they understand kind of that what's the baseline information that you've gathered of what you've done that is actual usable information that you can do and then planning on purpose. How do you train people when that person, as we know for the industry of trying to mentor and doing out of school time programs, the turnover is really huge. So then how do you onboard people every semester, every year to follow through with being intentional about the relationships that they're building because you said you wanted positive outcomes and experiences for young people. So it's not that it's, we don't find so much people who don't want to do the work. We find that we're really helping them scaffold how can they take it on from where we're now looking at how do you train actual leaders of organizations so that it actually becomes part of their everyday role and, and, and dare I say, not a, a checklist approach of, I promised I would do PD in this area, but something they actually can follow through from A to Z. And I think then the final piece to me about that is, and then how do you go back and say, can we sustain it? Is it working? Is it not working? Did we include parents? Did we include our community? So it's bigger than that. So it's just really helping people digest the conversation, help them see the value of time because we all never have enough time. But talking about when you invest time in the right way, it won't seem like you're using up a lot of time. And then looking at how do I, what do I envision five to 10 years from now? And how will I know if that happened? No, thank you. I appreciate that. And, and 
I'm curious about schools in particular. You know, I think you all do a lot of work uh, with teachers and administrators, and I'm just curious as to, you know, are are those places where these relationships are already pretty strong and you're coming in to just kind of further uh, improve kind of uh, the relationships young people are finding, or do you often find schools to be pretty lacking in these? And and what do you think is most important in in turning that around or improving that? Is it more like the administration taking responsibility for that kind of sustainability of it and the time and energy investment, the resource investment in it? Or, or do you tend to focus more on, say, teachers and what they do in those interactions with students? Uh, where, where do you see schools needing to perhaps do more of this or do better? So, so I, I luckily can sometimes have that language, same language as administrators and teachers about their, their school improvement efforts. And when they look at their own data around classroom environment and student and teacher relationships, we talk about it's a both and. So an administrator needs to be able to look at their data and being willing to invest the time. But they also have to, the conversations I have with administrators is, so what is your statement before we do uh, this work around relationships? In other words, do you have an understanding of where you think it fits? Did you already talk to your uh, other teacher leaders about where it fits? Um, Or are you trying to do, which most are not, a top-down intervention work? And so having that discussion of where their head is at, where their vision is, and and what are they using for feedback is what I do. And then with teachers, because their plate is full, and and I do speak from a plate is full mentality because uh, if you think about big dinners, I love sweet potatoes and mashed potatoes on the plate. So when I say that, I'm saying that I need the both and to make it feel like it was a real meal. Like, yes, that's a whole lot of work to do both those dishes. But it's also something where I'm going to feel like something's missing when they're not both on my plate. So I say that not taking it lightly that teachers have a full plate. I say that when a teacher sees that students aren't, let's use an academic measure, being successful, then what are you doing to try to get there? And here's some approaches to make that happen even with that full plate. And so most teachers that we've talked to um, have said, I knew some of this, but I didn't have a name for it. I knew some of this, but now I know I can be intentional because here's a strategy. Um, I knew some of this, but now I actually can follow through and you made me rethink how I want to do this approach, especially because right now they're having to rethink fall school expectations. How do you help kids reconnect, recommit, um, and feel like this is worth their time and investment. And so they're, they are pushing pause to say, I need to think about my approach in a different way. So it hasn't been this hard sell thing. It's been, let's talk about it a little bit more. And they have felt that the time with us has been valuable. Oh, that's good to know. I, I was going to ask actually a follow-up question around how uh, the pandemic and just the chaos that it has thrown schools in particular into how that's impacted your work, but it sounds like uh, perhaps it's uh, being valued and requested and, you know, kind of uh, needed more than ever. It, it, it is in that we're having to rethink everything, right? So I, I have a high schooler in my home and I think about expressing care. So we actually have a way to reassess where you thought you were putting your efforts and then how can you say, oh, I thought I was showing her care, but if she didn't feel that way, here's what I probably want to do more specifically uh, this time to show her. So again, it's not about me making myself feel better. It's about me making her feel better about what we should go. So that's also the experience that I share with teachers and them saying, you're right, that that's what I'm needing to do. So they actually are able to talk in a, in a community of other learners and practitioners and share ideas and ways they've been reaching out to their kids uh, virtually and um, in other methods that the whole community that's on that day finds valuable. And I'll just add to that, Search Institute recently, uh, earlier this month, in fact, released our new DR Developmental Relationships Survey, which is both a youth report survey and teacher survey. 
And we've added a, a new COVID-19 module to really understand how, how are kids experiencing their relationships with teachers and out-of-school time staff during all of this? And what are some of the challenges they're facing? Hoping that we can sort of find shed some light on what that experience is like so that we can provide some supports to, to help during this, this unprecedented time. I have one last question for you. We've talked a lot about uh, kind of schools and other settings where kids find uh, relationships, but this is a mentoring podcast, so I guess I have to ask explicitly about mentoring here. So pretend I'm a mentor uh, to a young person and I come across your framework. What should I really keep in mind as I think about applying this framework to my relationship with a young person? We, we say right away, be intentional, be focused on what you're trying to do. Take this serious in that, uh, which people do, right? But take this serious of developing relationships actually takes work. It, it doesn't happen by, it doesn't by happenstance. Um, and that if you want this to work, if you will, then what are some steps that you should take? And then who's going to go in on this with you? So you should have um, some allies and supporters so that you don't feel alone And so that's actually another area that we've been talking about is what does it mean to coach a person through this work? So how do you you do that? And that to not take, if it doesn't seem successful at first, that to take that as that learning experience to be able to to still move forward and and to not feel defeated because it is real work. it's It's not necessarily just easy, but it's very rewarding if you do it. And I'll just add to that. I think part of it is just to find find small, comfortable ways to to actually talk about your relationship with your mentee. Like talk about what it is and what your what they need, what they're getting, what they're not getting. I think so often we just forget to ask young people really explicitly, "What do you need from me?" Because certainly, when we ask kids in open ended ways on surveys, they they have some really compelling advice for adults. And so creating space in your mentoring relationship to just have that conversation as it feels comfortable, I think is a great place to start. No, I love that. And and I appreciate that both of you have talked a lot about the bi-directionality of these relationships and that uh, the adult needs to be learning along the way as well, right? Because uh, I almost feel like uh, there could be a developmental relationships framework for young people and how to relate to their their mentor as well uh, as they have some responsibilities and some key things I think that they bring to this as well and and one of them is you know be vocal about what you what you need and what you want and, and what's not working for you uh, so that it can get get better well I really appreciate you both taking some time to to talk about your work I encourage everyone in the mentoring space to go check out uh, not only the developmental relationships framework, but the whole suite of trainings and tools and, and other good stuff that you all have produced around that topic. And, and some of the other things you mentioned, like Sparks, uh, it's all excellent content uh, that can really help programs. Uh, we always end these podcasts this season with a little segment I call reverse rotation, where my guests get to ask me a question. So I don't know if you've been thinking about something you want to spring on me here, but uh, it's always an interesting and fun way to end these. So uh, go, go ahead and ask me uh, whatever you want. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. Well, thinking back to your more youthful days, we'd love to hear about what adult fundamentally shaped your life through their relationship with you and what it is that they did. So... I will briefly mention, because I mentioned this on another uh, episode earlier in the year, someone asked me who my mentor was, but I will give a, another shout out to Miss Bennett from Churchill High School in Eugene, Oregon. I'm sure she has retired by now. Uh, I hope she's not still teaching. She's probably 90 at this point, so hopefully she's uh, retired and, and doing great. But she uh, was my English teacher, really encouraged my creative writing, and um, kind of taught me to... Uh, be comfortable with my own voice a little bit. So, but the other, like, I don't, I never had like a mentor mentor growing up, like someone that I would have put that name on, uh, not even her, to be honest with you. But there is, uh, you're going to laugh at this, but I think one of the most formative relationships, if you want to call it that, that I had was with a television character of all things. When I think back about who 
who influenced me and the person that I am, Hawkeye Pierce from MASH. We watched a lot of MASH in my household as a child. And I remember being struck by the warmth of that character, the caring, the way that character would speak up for people that could not uh, or didn't have the power perhaps to speak for themselves in in many situations, the, the kind of the moral compass and the moral clarity of the, the character. Um, not that he was perfect, and certainly many episodes explored his many foibles and <laughs> vices, and, uh, you know, some of it uh, doesn't, you know, the interactions with the nurses don't look real great uh, through the lens of 30 years of, of cultural change, but I just remember really forming a lot of my values and the way I see the world and how I think about concepts like justice, uh, very, very, uh, influential on me. So, uh, Alan Alda, if you're listening to this podcast, which you are almost certainly not, uh, thank you for that. So, uh, <laughs> Oh, that's a lovely story. I love it, but it just teaches us there are so many relational models out there that we look to, right. As, as adults and as kids, that we're, that we're learning from by watching how those relationships unfold, whether they're in real life or on TV. So I like that. Oh, well, thanks. Well, uh, let's go ahead and wrap it up here. I appreciate both of you joining us today and talking about your great work. And uh, as I said earlier, I really encourage folks to go to your website and check out all the great tools and resources that you've got. And I will also note that if you're a mentoring program who was inspired by today's conversation to do something, whether it's around developmental relationships or more training for your mentors or whatever it may be, you can always get free training and technical assistance through the National Mentoring Resource Center. Just go to our website, nationalmentoringresourcecenter.org, and there's a big you know, get uh, help with your program button in the upper right-hand corner. Just click that and, and fill out a, a simple form and we'll connect you to one of our expert consultants around the country and help you improve your program practices. So on behalf of OJJDP and the National Mentoring Resource Center, we thank you for joining us today and we will see you next time on Reflections on Research. Thank you.